I don't think I've ever been more excited <laughs> about an answer. After having the experience that I did of homelessness, I hid it for so long. I felt like I couldn't talk about it. But actually, if you own your vulnerabilities and your failures with as much conviction as you own your successes, then the people that come up behind you don't have such a tough journey. But when I first joined the fire service, there's absolutely no doubt they didn't want me there. How many times as women do we just put up with things that happen because we think it's just the way of the world? And I did a seven year part-time PhD in three years. And people told me I was nuts. And the work that we did changed the national policy. There's something deeply important about not blaming people for the biases that they have and recognising that we all have them. But there's something for everybody in that, not just women, not just someone that's experiencing a bias. Everyone can take something from that. My guest in this episode is Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who, since joining the fire service when she was 18, has worked her way up its ranks to become one of the most senior serving officers. What prompted her to join, she says, is that it gives you the opportunity to make someone's life better, whether proactively making sure they don't have a fire or being one of the people trusted to know what to do on someone's very worst day. That is something I carry with me every single day when I go to work. She was born in Cardiff and raised in Newport, and after the death of her father when she was 15, Cohen Hatton was made homeless. Her school knew she wasn't living at home. One teacher even crossed the road when they saw her selling the big issue. Yet against the odds, she was able to complete her GCSEs. During her homelessness, she slept in derelict buildings, on the streets, in a van, and even woke up on one occasion to find someone urinating on her sleeping bag. It took three attempts to get off the streets, and in 2001, at the age of 18, she joined the fire service in South Wales. While in the service, she completed a bachelor's degree in psychology at the Open University before completing a PhD in the Behavioural Neuroscience Lab at Cardiff University. A pivotal moment in her life and career was responding to an incident where she knew another firefighter had been horrifically injured. She thought it was her husband, also a firefighter, and though it wasn't, that event prompted her interest in reducing human error and making firefighters safer, and she has since become a leading international expert on risk-critical decision-making in crises. Her list of awards and honours is impressive. In 2016, she was awarded the American Psychological Association Early Career Award from the Society of Experimental Psychology and Cognitive Science. In 2018, she received the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council Innovator of the Year Award. And in 2021, she received an Honorary Doctor of Science Award at Royal Holloway University. In the UK... Just over 7% of firefighters are women and Cohen Hatton, a rare female chief fire officer, has focused her latest book on dismantling what it means to be a female in power. The gender bias, the barriers that hold women back and how to break them, has been described as a rallying call to change the perception of successful women by a woman at the top of her field. Sabrina, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Emma Gunn Show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. What, I mean, what an introduction. I mean, I try and make them short and sweet and to the point. But there's so much. Oh, thank you. No, that's really kind. It's um, It's been quite a journey. It has been quite a journey. So I'm curious, just based on all of that information alone, there is so much. Uh, chief, there's the period of homelessness. There's all of the awards that you've achieved. There's the work that you've done. If I say you've got to choose one thing that you can talk about today, and don't worry, you get to talk about many of them. But if you wanted to, if there's the thing that people ask you about the most, mm -hmm. what is it? And, and I'm curious how that's defined you. It's a really good question. And I think if I was to choose one thing to talk about, it would be about how you don't have to be defined. 
I honestly, after having the experience that I did of homelessness, I used to feel like that had defined me. Mm -hmm. I used to feel like I couldn't move beyond that. And I, I, I hid it for so long. I felt like I couldn't talk about it because I just wanted to start again. Yeah. And I thought that if people knew about it, they would see me as I was, not as I was then or how they were seeing me at that point in time. And I found that really difficult. And I'd look at people in my industry, in the fire service, who were leaders and who were successful. And they would be these amazing, incredible people who were so tough and they always knew what to do and they always knew what to say and they were never afraid of anything. And having that experience, it made me feel like I couldn't possibly be in the same league as them ever because this thing had happened that made me feel really vulnerable. Mm. But the reality was that every single one of those had failures and had mistakes and had things that made them feel vulnerable, but they only showed their showreel because that was all that was expected. But actually, if you own your vulnerabilities and your failures with as much conviction as you own your successes, then the people that come up behind you don't have such a tough journey. And that's why I started to talk about my experience of homelessness, because it affects so many people. And I wanted them to know that those circumstances, what they've been through, doesn't define where they end up, just the place where they start from. Mm. So I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be that you don't have to be defined. I love that you said that. And when I was researching this episode and I was reading about you, I read something that you had said and I wrote it down. I scribbled it so hard into my notepad because it's something that I have been looking for the words to try and explain for such a long time. And it's about definition, about how we define ourselves. And I find it really frustrating that we seem to be in a culture at the moment where we have started to define ourselves by the worst things that have happened to us mm. and that then becomes one's identity yeah. and actually I think you said I think what you said was it's an experience mm. so you don't have to be defined by it yeah. it's just an experience that you had and that you learned from and now I feel like instead of raging <laughs> I now have the vocabulary to be able to say yeah really terrible that really terrible thing did happen but it doesn't mean that you have to enter every single day as the person that that happened to. Yeah. yeah. You are allowed to grow. Yeah. I think that's beautiful, isn't it? Because when we have those things that happen to us, they are hard and they do affect our the lens that we see the world through. So, for example, when I was experiencing homelessness, I would I had more than one occasion where I'd be kind of sat down on the side of the street. And I'd be cold and you'd be asking for spare change or trying to sell the big issue. And people would look at me like I had no worth. And, you know, the, at the best of time, they might give me a pitying look. And at the worst of times, you know, I'd be kicked or punched or spat at and all kinds of things said to me that made me feel like people saw me as having no value. And as much as we all want to say, look, we don't care what other people think of us, you know, there are 7 billion people in the world. Why should I give a damn about your view on me? You don't even know me. And that's right. And that's rational. But the reality is we're human beings and we're hardwired to absorb that as, inf as social information. Mm. And so the thing that that informs me isn't necessarily of my own worth, but it informs me about how the next experience I'm going to have might look. Mm. It informs my expectations of the world, my expectations of people. And that can become your, part of your inner narrative and eventually how you see yourself. So actually stepping back from that and saying, yeah, I understand that this can inform my view, but actually my view can be wider than that because this is something that I went through 
but it's not me. Mm-hmm. And start to really kind of think about how you feel versus the rational side of things as well. For me, that's really helped me to move through it. And I recognize it now. So, mm-hmm. you know, whereas I used to have this real sense of imposter syndrome, don't get me wrong, I still do at times. Of course I do. But I used to think that I had less worth than everybody else because of what I'd been through. Mm. But actually what I've learned is that value isn't determined by the things that you've gone through or the horrible things that have happened. And it's not defined by the great things that have happened either. It's about how you move through that and about you know, how you can step up again, get up again after life has knocked you down repeatedly. But equally, it's how you can take the good with good grace. I think mm. that's just as important. Agreed. And I, I think, I wouldn't say it was a stumbling block but I just said in the introduction about how you wanted to be there for people on their worst day, how this motivation to help people is something that you take into mm. your job with you every single day. And I think I did have a bit of a stumbling block because I thought, but you've been spat on by people. You've felt you've been made to feel worthless because of your position by other people. And yet the thing that you did when you were able to I don't know, I don't know what the right way to say is, but the, the thing that you did when you were able to get into a position where you could operate on perhaps a level with mm. other people is to help them. And I must admit, I I had did scratch my head about that and thought, I think it would be really understandable if you became quite um, hard-edged. I think for me, the bit that it took me a while to realise but I did eventually realise is that even those people that would have spat on me or kicked me or said some awful things, that one thing that they did, that one experience that I had of them, doesn't define them as people either. Mm. So they might still be really good people and do really good things and they've done something really off or really stupid or really unfair or really bad, but that's not that person as a whole. That's not their entirety. And it took me a while because it's difficult when you have a single act, single interaction for that not to become a really kind of formative part of your judgment. But when I look at my experience and how it made me feel, I know that that experience isn't me. It doesn't define me. It doesn't define all of me. Just as those negative interactions that I've had with people doesn't define them. And, you know, look, I don't know what that person has been through that day before we've had that interaction or what I might be bearing the brunt of. And for a while, I did feel really angry at the world. Um, I did. But I really care deeply about people. And I know that people are more than the sum of just a couple of experiences that, that they've had. And I truly believe that the vast majority of people underneath it all are really good people. My um, my grandmother is an amazing influence on me. She's incredible. My grandparents were Moroccan Jews. And my grandmother... Um, in in Jerida in Morocco back in 1948, I think it was, um, was attacked in a pogrom. And she was attacked with a machete and, and left for dead. It was anti-Jewish riots and a number of Jews in the same community were, were murdered that day. And when my grandfather went back to find her body, he essentially had to pull her out from beneath, sorry, it's a bit graphic, but he had to pull her out from beneath a pile of corpses And bearing in mind, these weren't just, they're not just bodies to him. It was a really small Jewish community. So these were people that he worshipped with. These were his friends. Some of them were his his family and relatives. But he found her and pulled her out and she gasped for air. Mm. 
Mm. She was still alive. And so as soon as she was well enough, they fled Morocco on foot as refugees with their first newborn son and started a new life again from scratch. And when my father was um, was dying, she came and lived with us along with my grandfather and helped to care for him. And she had such a huge influence on me because she, despite going through all this, I never once saw her resent or pity herself. And she still looks at people with such compassion and such empathy and such love. And in fact, she even talks about her attacker and she says how how it must have been so difficult to live in an environment so filled with hate that you would do that to somebody else and how she hopes that he finds peace and forgiveness and doesn't lie on his deathbed thinking about that. She hopes that he can move on. She just turned 100 on Valentine's Day. She's incredible. And I think to myself, if she can go through that and still see all the good in the world, then what happened to me is nothing in comparison to what happened to her. Um, And I think if she can see the good then I can try my best to see the good in everything. Mm. When you were experiencing homelessness, you were young. You were uh, 15? Yes, nearly 16 when I first started Sleeping Rough. And I've heard you talk about the fact that one of your teachers at school saw you selling the big issue and cross the street, cross the road. Now, you can have all the compassion in the world that you want for the fact that what do you do when you see a student and realise that there's a whole lot going on that maybe you're not emotionally equipped to deal with. But I can't imagine what that must have felt like to feel that rejection Mm. of not my problem. You're only my problem between the hours of 8.30 and (laughs) 4.30. And yet still for you to still turn up at that school, not say anything, get your head down and get your GCSEs. I can't fathom um, the mental strength um, it was horrible. It was really horrible. I'd been out there selling the big issue most of the day. It was a freezing cold day. I was in a, a little town called Chepstow. I usually used to go and sell it in um, Monmouth. That was my general pitch because no one else used to go and sell it there. But this one day I was down in Chepstow and I was there and I was selling it and I made eye contact with him and I smiled. I didn't expect him to buy a magazine. I just thought he might, you know, say hello. And he put his head down, he crossed the road to try and avoid me. And I can remember, I I literally watched him walk across the road. And I was like, no, he's going to turn around in a second. He's going to turn around in a second. He didn't turn around. And I just burst into tears. And I was kind of stood in a shop doorway. And I can remember turning into the shop doorway and just kind of like, because I was embarrassed that I was crying and just trying to hide the fact that I was crying. Oh God, I can feel myself going now. But I was just trying to hide the fact that I was crying from everyone else. And he literally just walked off. And I knew then, I knew then that I was on my own and that nobody cared and no one was going to come and swoop in and make it any better for me. The only way I was going to do it is if I did it myself. Um, but I had, uh, I had a stray dog. He was a stray dog. I was a stray girl. It worked brilliantly. <laughs> and his name was Menace because he was a menace. Um, but I also had a little Dennis the Menace jumper. And so it became a, it became a thing. <laughs> and he was with me. Um, and I can remember just kind of like cutching down in the corner. Cutching is like Welsh for cuddle. So I kind of cuddled down in the corner with him. Um, and just that was the only thing that brought me any sense of comfort. Um, but during that time, actually, it's funny. I, I have a funny relationship with dogs in the sense that I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> I love them. And I think it goes back to my experience back then when the rest of the world seemed to isolate me. 
and I was on my own. And the only kind of social and emotional connection I had was with Menace. It was with my dog. And I know lots of people will pass judgment on people experiencing homelessness who have dogs. And I had, you know, on more than one occasion, I had people say, oh, you're only, you've only got a dog for sympathy. And it's like, no, not quite, not quite. I'm not getting much sympathy from you, am I, <laughs> darling? So maybe not. So, um, yeah, he was the only emotional and social connection that I had. And he was, that relationship was so important to me. So if there are people listening that have a view on people experiencing homelessness and their ability to keep a pet, I would just ask them to, to challenge themselves and bear that in mind because mm. he was so meaningful to me. And at that point in time, when that teacher had crossed the road, Thank God I had menace with me because otherwise I think I'd have just fallen apart. Mm. There's so much to unpick in your story and this really is only a tiny part of it. But I ask people at the beginning of the show, what's your relationship like with risk? And I don't think I've ever been more excited <laughs> about an answer because I think that you have probably, uh, you probably have an interesting take on this. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say. Yeah, um, I'm really comfortable in the risk space, as you might imagine, with my day job. But it's really interesting, you know, because what I've noticed as a woman in that environment is people have a different view on what should be an acceptable level of risk for a woman to take in comparison to a man. So I wrote about this in my new book, actually. And one of the stories that I opened with was... Um, uh, a party that I went to with Mike, my firefighting husband, and we were, it was, it was kind of, it was a belated Boxing Day party. So, you know, that time of year when you don't quite know whether it's New Year's Day or still Christmas Day, it's somewhere in between. Yeah. There's nothing on telly that tells you <laughs> what the normal day is. It was one of those days. And we were chatting to a couple that, um, they were from the school. We'd seen them before, but never really kind of interacted. And we, we were just chatting and they said to, they said to us, Oh, what do you do? And Mike said, oh, I'm, I'm a firefighter. And they were like, wow, that's amazing. God, <laughs> tell us all your stories. You're so brave and all of that kind of thing. And Mike was kind of like, you know, he's, he's very good. And he's like, yeah, it's it's a really good career. I really enjoy it. But so is my wife, actually. In fact, she's my boss or not just my boss, but my boss's 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 boss. <laughs> I kind of made a joke about it. And they looked at me like I had two heads, like the shock. And the, Elaine, bless her, the, the, the lady had said to me, but isn't it a bit dangerous? Mm. What about the risk? And I was like, well, you know, actually, it's not as risky as you might imagine. We're very well trained, et cetera, et cetera. And then Derek, the guy, bless him, started <laughs> to comment on my femininity and then on my legs, at which point we politely left to refresh our glasses. But it is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> people perceive the way that you should take risk. And I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was um, a mountaineer called Alison Hargraves who died whilst summiting K2. And she was with a group of other climbers, men, who, uh, and unfortunately a number of them also died. And the press coverage was focused on her because she was a mother and how selfish she must have been to have gone off and climbed this mountain but none of the male parents had the same kind of press coverage. So there was that perception about mm. whether you should or you shouldn't take risk as a woman. And I found this really fascinating. Um, I'm really comfortable in the risk space because I've lived in it since I was 18 years old. And I think it's really important to be able to calibrate risk. That's an adaptive thing. Mm. And actually, you'll only progress in life. You'll only you'll only adapt to the world around you if you can successfully calibrate a risk and take it. 
because mm. that's how you innovate. You do something different. That comes with a risk. You apply for a promotion. That comes with a degree of risk. So if people expect me as a woman to take less risks than Mike as a man, actually, where does that leave us? That leaves me disadvantaged, really, because you've got to push harder. But as a society, imagine how much further we could go if we were expecting the same out of all of society, not just half of it. Mm. So there's something there. And I started to look at the, because re- I was really frustrated by this. So I started to look at the research. And I was like, well, where does this come from? Why is it perceived so differently? There's a really lovely study that was done um, with psychologists watching parents responding to children in risky play. Um, And they were looking at these kids playing on a fire pole, ironically, you know, like a playground (laughs) fire pole. And what they found was when the little girls wanted to go and play on it, and all the kids were matched, by the way, so they were all equally as capable physically of of doing this. And the little girls were put off by their parents. They were told, wait for me, let me come and help you. They would spontaneously intervene more often than they would do with the little boys. And the little boys were encouraged. And if they showed any mm. kind of trepidation, the parents would give them advice on how to do it independently. So come on, you can do it. You know, you're strong, you're tough. Whereas the little girls, oh, hang on, you might get your dress dirty. Or wait for me, let me come and help you. And that was mums as well as dads, mm. by the way. So it's really interesting to see how that language then affect us and then you fast forward to the world of work and you take the Hewlett-Packard study for instance that found that women on average would only apply for a job if they met 100% of the job criteria but the guys would apply on average if they met about 60%. You can see how that risk appetite, those social messages that we all absorb from the time that we're tiny, Mm. the way that society rewards or disparages us for the things that we do can have a really big impact on our life chances, the way that we progress, our economic success even. And it's I think it's a really important thing that we probably just don't think about enough. Mm. So yeah, I'm fascinated not just by individuals' propensity to take risks, but also how much we're affected by the world around us in, in how likely we might be to do that. Mm. I mean, I was just thinking the, the small, the microcosm of that is my family. We're a risk averse family. And I've had to really learn to take risks because it's not something I grew up with necessarily. Mm. And so if you, as you say, if you look at it on a society wide level, it completely makes sense. Cause I think a lot of us are risk averse mm. and especially you're right. If it's showing up in girls yeah. at a young age being told, um, no, but yeah. like it's life limiting. Yeah, it is. It's hugely life limiting. And the thing that I learned, I think, through some of my experiences is, do you know what? It doesn't matter how bad it is or how spectacularly you fail or mess something up. And believe me, I've done that a lot. The world will still turn and the mm. sun will still rise and tomorrow is still going to come. So you still have an opportunity to change something or to do something differently or to have another go. So it's that calibration, isn't it? Mm. It's I guess it is almost asking yourself what I ask you, which is what's my relationship like with risk? Mm. Okay, so if I want to, I think risk is like anything, isn't it? Risk On the other side of risk, you have progress. Yeah. I think on the this side of risk, not taking it, I think potentially you have regret. Mm. So for me, it's like maybe it would be better to sort of risk it yeah. and then have the data, whether I succeed or fail, to yeah. then know what to do next. But um, yeah, I'm curious about what the biggest risk is that you've taken. Oh, my goodness. I think the biggest risk that I took, do you know, I think it was, I, I think it was the research. So I had... Um, 
I had an incident where another firefighter was severely burned, as you you kindly mentioned in the introduction, um, and I thought it was my husband. And I'll never forget the day that that happened because you go to a thousand shouts, it's your day in, day out, your bread and butter. So the bells go down, you go down into the appliance day, and I thought it was going to be just another emergency. I say just another emergency. It's never just an emergency for somebody, but for me it was my daily bread. Um, so I went down and the guys were already at the teleprint and they were looking at this little slip of paper that said what it was and they were just staring at me. And I was like, I was pulling on my my boots and yanking the braces up over my shoulders and I was like, what is it? And they said, it's 241, it's Mike's truck. It's a firefighter injury, it might be Mike. And I can remember feeling like my whole world was starting to fall apart and the room started to spin and I just about managed to get on the truck. But I felt like I was about to become one of those people that we see every day who wake up to a bowl of cornflakes and complete normality, but something happens without warning and their entire world gets turned upside down. And I thought at that point in time, that was going to be me. Mm. And so I can remember getting on the truck and just feeling so completely torn between the role of a responder and all of the kind of accountability and responsibility that goes with that and the role of a loved one and all of the kind of fears and fallibilities that go with that. And we turned up and it wasn't Mike, but he had very nearly been killed. And they'd been called to um, an exploding pavement. Now, I don't know what your experience is of explosions or pavements, but they don't traditionally tend to go together. So they thought it was a hoax. And it was actually an underground electrical junction um, that had a fault in it. So it would periodically shoot flame up like a jet engine. Wow. And Mike had been lying down with his head in the pit, poking <gasps> around, wondering what on earth it was. And it was only as he got up to put the lid back on that it blew up and it caught our colleague clean in the face. And it was the most awful, awful incident. And even though he was okay... After that, I'd kind of relive it. And then I'd feel this sense of kind of deep kind of fear and anxiety because you'd almost imagine the other the other outcome. And then I'd feel relief because I don't know, it wasn't him, it was okay. But then I'd feel guilt because it felt like by not wanting it to be him, I'd wished it on someone else and it was driving me crazy. And that's when I started to look at what we could do to try and make people safer. And firstly, I thought, well, maybe we can get a better burns pack naively and you know, we might be better prepared. But what I discovered is that the vast majority of injuries happen as a result of human error. So I'm only going to be able to make a contribution to fixing that if I understand human error. So I went back to night school. I studied at the OU. I did a psychology degree all the way up to a PhD then at Cardiff, all part time while I was still working full time. And people told me I was nuts. They said, I don't know why you're doing that. It's a waste of time. You're not going to go anywhere with it. Why are you putting yourself through this? Because with my PhD, I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd be in the lab at half five. I'd run my experiments till half eight. I'd go and I'd pull a full shift in the fire service. I'd come home, put my newborn baby to bed because that was wonderful timing, wasn't it? <laughs> and then I'd go back to the lab for the night shift and I'd be there till 12, one o'clock in the morning sometimes. And I did a seven-year part-time PhD in three years. They had to re-register me as a full-time uh, student so that I could submit. And that was when the real work started. So after that, <laughs> I know I had to get that out of the way. Wow. But after that, we started a national program of research looking at firefighters and how they made decisions 
in the field. So we were the first people ever to get data from the fire ground because usually it's just interviewing someone after an event when their mm. memory might be different. You can't categorize the sequence of events with that because they might not absorb all the information. Um, or people would set it up as in a in a training scenario, but we actually went to live incidents and got data there so we could understand how people were making decisions. And the work that we did changed the national policy for how we deal with incidents. We changed the training techniques that people use for making decisions. And actually now all emergency services use them. They're in something called JESSIP, which is our Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Principle. So how we come together and, and make decisions that will affect a, a major incident. The work that we did all fed into that. And everyone told me that I was being stupid when I said, I want to do this. And it was a massive risk. And I can remember being given an ultimatum in work about taking a secondment that would kind of grow this and, and help me to put the research into policy or stay where I am and carry on on the career path that I was expected to do. Um, and I chose that, lost my base posting, which really upset me, but it meant that I could use what I'd studied to be able to apply it to try to make people safer, which is what I really, really wanted to do. So that whole process was a massive risk because I was potentially wasting 13 years of my life um, against the odds and against people's better advice. I did it anyway. And I am so glad that I did. Based on all of that work and the 13 years, if that same exploding incident pavement, exploding pavement incident happened today, would what you've done mean that um, there wouldn't be a casualty? I believe so, yeah. Wow. So that one incident was really formative. It was huge. A huge moment. Yeah, hugely. And it also... It really recalibrated my view of the world because here was the man who I dearly loved that I want to spend the rest of my life with, who I want to have a family with, my whole world. And I could have lost him in an instant. And it really made me recalibrate my view of forever, or what forever mm. could mean in a way that I'd experienced vicariously through other incidents and other emergencies that I'd been to. But there's nothing quite like that feeling that you feel in every cell of your body when it's you. Mm. You said that you would, um, your mind would play tricks on you essentially. Yeah. And um, I wonder, does he have that? Does he think about if it had been a second longer? He will always be very quiet about it. But I would imagine so. Mm. That's a tough thing to come. Yeah. So there's also, there's the protocols that you put in place, but there's also the emotional side of those things. Yeah. Um, and do you think that doing this research, doing this work, changing this policy helps you emotionally handle everything that you face in your job day to day? Definitely. Definitely. Firstly, it kept me really busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was really good. Um, but just knowing that you've done something to make a contribution to it. Mm -hmm. I haven't fixed the problem, but I've done something that will shift the dial and make it a little bit better. Mm. And we shifted the dial with the science as well. You know, I never expected to get awards for this. I think we're up to 
I think we're up to eight global science award, international science awards for it now as well. So we managed to kind of push the field a bit further forward mm. so other people can then go and grow that and do more amazing stuff and help to push us all a bit further forward. So it means so much that we've been able to do that. So when I think about all of the difficult emotions that I had and that feeling of guilt and how hard it was to process it, and I compare it to some of the kind of positives that I think have come out of it, then I think, yeah, on balance, on balance, I've put something good back into the world to help with that. Mm. It's incredible. It's such an incredible story. And the the commitment as well is just phenomenal. Right. Um, I am going to ask you, though, because you listen to all of that, and I ask my guests, what's an excuse that you use that gets in your way. <laughs> I think most people would be like, Emma, <laughs> read the room. Nothing gets in her way. Nothing gets in her way. <laughs> but um, actually, what you said is really interesting. It's the excuse that you make for other people, particularly when they say things where it's like, oh, they didn't mean it. And actually stopping, pausing and saying, well, it doesn't matter if they meant it or not. Yeah. It had an impact. And that's what we need to work on. Yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Because I've heard it so many times and I've excused it with people, you know, who've said something. And, and OK, let's take gender bias as an example. Someone will have, uh, I don't know, for example, spoken over me in a meeting or taken an idea that I've said and completely ignored it. Mm. And then a guy has said it five minutes later. And they're like, oh, that's such a fantastic idea, John. That let's revisit that. I'm like... Hang on a minute. <laughs> Did I just say that five minutes ago? Mm. Um, so those kind of things where people will not have necessarily done it maliciously. Mm -hmm. They won't have meant offence by it, but actually it's caused damage. Mm. And I'll be like, oh, they're a good person. I know they didn't mean it. You know, it's fine. It's fine. But it's only recently in the past few years I've kind of paused and gone, well, yeah, they didn't mean it. And yeah, they're a good person, but it's not fine actually. And unless I had unless I stop and I speak to them about that, I'm not stopping it happening from anybody else, mm. to anybody else, sorry. Um, and it's important to do that. So now when things like that happen, you know, you can make a joke out of it there and then if the audience in the room means that you can do that, mm. if the, your relationship with the person means you can do that. Sometimes, and actually more often than not, I find it more effective to kind of take them to one side afterwards and just say, I don't know if you realise, but when we were having that conversation, did you realise that you said this? Or did you realise when Jane raised that, you just kind of completely ignored it and it wasn't until it was it was reiterated by a guy that you jumped on it. So actually, how do you think that made her feel? And, you know, you have those conversations and then actually it makes them stop and pause mm. because I honestly believe that deep down people are good. No one comes into the world and goes, I'm going to be really biased today. <laughs> no one turns around and raises their children to have biases, do they? But it happens. It's normal because of the way that we categorise information. Our experiences mm. of the world get filed away in a little file with things that are similar. And when you see something that is similar to something that you already know, it, your brain processes it more easily. It's a bit like yeah. Candy Crush. So if you have things <laughs> that are similar, boom, they're all together and they go in the pot. Well, that's the same thing with experiences that we have. So for example, if you meet 100 firefighters and 93 of them are guys, I can understand why your little file of firefighters is predominantly filled with an image of guys. Mm. And then when you do see a woman, you're going to be surprised. I can understand that. And so I can completely see psychologically where biases come from. 
but those biases have a really pernicious impact on mm. people. It has a, a pernicious impact on our ability to, to, to expect equity within the workplace, equity within society. And it's those little things, the unwritten things that make a really, really big difference. So I was reading, um, I was reading about a study that went in the book, actually, which really, really interested me. And it was talking about um, teachers. So 200 teachers in universities um, gave out their students their grades. And the students then had to rate how good they thought their teachers were. They were given a survey. And interestingly, when women teachers gave out poor grades, they were rated more negatively than women teachers that gave out high grades. But the same thing didn't happen with male teachers. Oh, so there was something really interesting about how we how we differentiate and how we recognize. And women are supposed to be caring and lovely and and and, and nurturing. So when a woman comes in and then is critical in some way, from a self-esteem perspective, there's one theory that suggests that people will draw on a gendered stereotype, a negative gendered stereotype, to try and reserve your self-esteem. So she can't possibly know what she's talking about. So I must be, I must be okay. And it's fascinating, really, because you think about how much of that, how much of the world that affects. There was another really fascinating case study that was done. Um, and I first learned about this from um, Cheryl Sandberg's. Cheryl Sandberg's TED talk. Um, and I, it was so fascinating that I had to go up and look up the study. But there's this amazing businesswoman called Heidi Royson, who was so incredible that at Harvard Business School, they turned her into a case study, but they made two versions and they only changed one word. Half of the students at Harvard had the case study of Heidi Royson, the other half had Howard. And then afterwards, they did a survey and they recognized both Heidi and Howard as equally as competent. So that bit was good. But Howard, they all thought he was an amazing boss. They thought he was really capable, really competent uh, and would be an amazing person to work for. The kind of boss that would be really inspirational. Heidi, they thought she was really cold, really self-centered, really political. People didn't want to work for her and they didn't think that they could trust her. Now, nobody, nobody would have said, I don't like Heidi because she's a woman. No one would have said that. Mm. But all of the reasons they were feeling negative about her were absolutely tied to a gendered stereotype and rooted in a sexist stereotype. And that was women as well as men, by the way, because mm. we're all categorizing information like this. And so for me, it's not just about the things that we might outwardly do or say. It's about the things that might be driving the way that we see something or the way that we feel about something. And those are the things that are going to be a lot harder to unpick because they're not, they're not even obvious to us, let alone somebody that's looking on. But until we really start to challenge those things, we're not going to be able to unpick those stereotypes and really shift the dial further forwards. It's so true. And I think uh, when I was... Um when I knew I was going to ask you about this, I had to interrogate my own. And you, because you also said um, about the power dynamics that come into play. And as soon as I read that, I thought, ah, okay. Have I called out more women than men? Because I feel like I'm more of an equal to mm -hmm. women than I am to men. And oh, I had to, I have to be really honest and I hate saying this out loud, but it's absolutely true. I've been more likely in the past, particularly in working environments, mm -hmm to be critical of my female colleagues and try to have a conversation with them about that mm. than I have with my male colleagues because 
I feel that they'll just shoot me down and I won't be able to have a conversation with them. Yeah. So I just haven't been particularly critical. In fact, I have, I I definitely learned last time, I had a very difficult male colleague at a project once when in the end I just got so tired of him and said, I think I'm, well, I called him obtuse. Um, <laughs> that was very polite of you. <laughs> he was being a little bitch and um, I didn't know how to properly say that. And I thought, was that a thing in the Shawshank Redemption that really upsets the guy? I was like, oh, so anyway. That's moving brilliant. on but it made me realize but it was only because in that situation I'd already kind of checked out but I thought if I if I'm being really honest I have as a woman found it easier to challenge women than I have as men and that's not because my female colleagues have been more difficult it's been because of what I perceive the outcome of that confrontation yeah. or that conversation to be yeah. and the risk is my male colleague might not like me and might tell me I'm a stupid woman <laughs> <laughs> and so I haven't done it. And I and I that does not sit comfortably with me. Yeah. But do you know it's so true because it's about how you feel at that point in time. So when I look back at some of my especially my early experiences and and my experiences today in it professionally are very different to the ones that I experienced kind of uh you know more than 20 years ago. But when I first joined the fire service, there's absolutely no doubt they didn't want me there. They were they didn't want to work with me. They were very clear they didn't want to work with a woman. In fact, there was this one guy that every time I saw him, it was like a compulsion. He had to tell me this. He had to say, don't agree with women in the fire service. No offence to you, Sabrina, but I just don't agree with women. And How know, could you not be offended by that? Well, this is it. And I mean, initially, I'm like, oh, I don't know where to look. I don't know what to say. I felt like I had to apologise for my own existence. And in the end, I was like why am I putting up with this? And I and I turned around and I said to him, yeah, I, I know how you feel because I don't agree with morons in the job, but here we are, no offence to you, buddy. But, you know... <laughs> But it took me a while. But, you know, I'd, I'd experienced things that were awful and I put up with a lot more than I ever should have mm. when I look back on that. And I talked about this in my first book and I'd experienced sexual harassment. I had experienced people not wanting to work with me because I was a woman. I'd even experienced highly inappropriate pictures sent directly to my phone. But in those days, they were very small screens. So, you know, no judgment here, fellas. But, you know, things that I really should have gone, hey, that's not okay. But I didn't. I mm. put up with it uh, because I didn't want to rock the boat because I thought that if I raised it, it would affect my reputation. And so I went into survival mode. You didn't want to be the squeaky wheel. I didn't want to be the squeaky wheel. But by not being the squeaky wheel, by not challenging it, I didn't stop it happening to anybody else. And I oh, yeah. really regret that. Mm. I really regret that. And that's why now it's so important to me to try to create an environment where people feel psychologically safe enough to say, hey, you know, I, this is this is what I want to expect every day. And actually what you did then really upset me. Or can we do that a different way? You know, those kind of things, that kind of feeling is really, really crucial. So, yeah, I haven't always done it right in the past because I didn't call it out because I was young and I felt insecure and I felt like the, the power dynamics in that environment were against me. But I do my best now to make sure that I don't. But you know what? You don't have to be a woman in a male-dominated in a male-dominated environment to relate to that. Everybody mm. has been in a situation at some point where they didn't like something, but they didn't feel empowered to challenge. So there's something for everybody in that. Not just not just women. Not just someone that's experiencing a bias. Not just someone with a protected characteristic. Everyone can take something from that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Which is absolutely true, but then there's also this thing in culture or uh, sort of like, well, you've just got to put up and shut up until you earn your stripes. And I think I definitely grew up in that age of you do the grunt work, you're... I mean, I worked in the media for a long time. You just, you had to do the grunt work. You had to make all the tea and mm. you just don't complain. And I think it's learning about when you can say yeah. this isn't right. There's a big difference between moaning yeah. and whinging and being a bit of a negative Nelly than there is about saying, actually, this is this is poor treatment. Yeah. There's a fine line, isn't there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And when I look back on my career, I stayed as a firefighter for about six years because I was worried about not having credibility. In what world do you, do you do a job for more than half a decade before you think you've got enough credibility to be able to lead other people in that same environment? But it's that pressure and I think it's that internal pressure that you put on yourself. So coming back to your point, the pressure that you put on yourself to not speak up or not say something because you don't think that you're empowered enough to do it is really real. And it is a fine line. And I'm I'm heartened because I think more people, particularly the generations that I see coming through now, when I look at my daughter's generation, you know, there's stuff that she will call out in a heartbeat mm. that when I was her age, I would have found really tough. Yeah. By the way, I'm kind of obsessed with your daughter. <laughs> it does seem like you have raised a one strong... The, the story about her getting hassled by boys on the train... Oh, she's great. ...is amazing. She, she is the reason they name storms after people. <laughs> <laughs> she is brilliant. And I don't give her enough credit sometimes for how streetwise she actually is. So... There were a group of boys hassling her on the train on her way back from school. And this was, she's 13 now. She would have been 12. This was the last school year. And so they were saying, come on, give us your Snapchat. Give us your Snapchat. And they're old, they were older boys, not that much older. They were still school boys, um, but they were they were older than her. And they went to a different school. So she was like, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And she was sat there with her friends and her friends were kind of like, you know, looking down, didn't know what to say or do. So she kind of told them in probably no uncertain terms, knowing her that she wasn't interested. Uh, but they ha they kept on. And then she was like, oh, I'm going to have to get out of this situation somewhere. So she said, oh, well, this is my stop. It wasn't. Um, and she jumped off the train and they went, oh, it's our stop too. And they started following her. This is a gang of boys Jeez. now. 
So she was completely unfazed and she just walked down, nonchalantly walked down the, the, walked down the platform until she heard the doors beep. And then she leapt back on the train as the doors closed and, um, gesticulated, shall we say, <laughs> at the open mouthed boys that were just gawping on the platform and then came home and, you know, took great delight in telling us this. And of course, my chin was on the floor at this point. And on the one hand, I wanted to give her a high five for her. Mm. sass level being off the chart and on the other side of it I was like Gabby that's sexual harassment mm. and I was like right we need to get the number of, of BTP because if that uh, if that happens again on the train then you yeah. need to text them and I, I actually put a thread on Twitter about it because I was like this was such a you know I was so upset that it had happened to yeah. her and I kind of wanted to say to people you know have you had this experience but at the same time I'm really proud of what she did and British Transport Police did tweet it and said you know if that ever happens again here's the number she's not you know she's not overreacting by it we want to hear mm. because and please report this by the way they were brilliant they were absolutely amazing but I don't think she even realized at that point in time quite how bad that experience was because how many times as women do we just put up with things that happen because it's just we think it's just the way of the world we we get catcalled and instead of being you know deeply deeply offended by it we go oh, well you know it's happened again we need to be more offended by that so I'm really glad that Gabby has got the tools that she needs to be able to deal with that. And like I said, with a sass level that's off the charts. <laughs> but I really wish that we had done more to have changed the world so she doesn't have to experience that. We've got further to go. What I also think is really amazing about that story, and I nearly mentioned it before, is about the passing it on. Mm. So Gabby was fine. Yeah. She can handle herself. She is smart enough to jump back on the train. I mean, yeah. it's like something out of a TV program or a movie, <laughs> isn't it? But you sharing it online is for the girl who maybe buckles really quickly, who starts crying, who yeah. they then round on and sort of poke fun at and yeah. then do get her Snapchat. Yeah. It's about paying it forward yeah. to those people. And I definitely, you were obviously really good at dealing with the the crappy colleagues who felt very comfortable <laughs> saying negative things to you. I've been in situations with quite uh, powerful men mm. in business and I was always quite like, oh, I, I seem to get on with them. It's fine. And just would brush it off. And it wasn't until I left that environment that I had a real deep sense of guilt of, oh, just because I survived, I wasn't thinking about the girl, the next girl who had to go in and see them. Yeah, And I didn't pave the way for her. I actually might have made it harder for her. And that is something that I kind of had to reconcile and make peace with and say, you, you only know what you know. Yeah. But now that I know, that'll yeah. never happen again. Yeah. You've got to stick up for people who might not have the tools that you have. I totally agree. But I also think that when you're in survival mode, it's really hard to see that. Mm. And I don't think sometimes we realize the pressure that's on us to try to get through. And you've got all these conflicting pressures and conflicting emotions because you want to be successful. You want to do a good job. You want to get through. Your, your, your success depends on you know, how, how effectively this deal is or how effective this deal is. And that depends on your relationship with that person over there, or you need to do this project to be able to progress. And you'll only do that project based on your relationship with that person. So it can become really, really difficult. And I honestly believe that it shouldn't be left to the people that are experiencing the detriment of, of the biases to be the ones to constantly call it out and do the work. We've all got work to do with mm. that, I think. And it, it's interesting because when I was looking at the 
research around this kind of thing. It's not, it's so easy to go, damn patriarchy again. But actually, women have got the same biases. And the, and we're all exposed to the same environment. We we don't, nobody wakes up and goes, right, I'm going to be really biased today. But we're all exposed to the same environmental biases. We're all exposed to, exposed to the same societal norms. So we all inherit the same rule book. And actually, there's, it's not until we all kind of go, we've all got this. We've all got work to do without kind of apportioning blame or saying, you know, and you you benefit from it. So it's your problem to fix. Actually, it's a societal problem mm. and it will take all of society to fix it. And if it makes you feel any better, <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, there was this brilliant study that I was looking at. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of the implicit association test. Um Possibly. Sounds oh, like the kind brilliant. of thing I would have come across. Oh, it's brilliant. So basically it looks at um, how, it looks at your unconscious biases mm -hmm. and basically it kind of flashes two words up and it looks at how long it takes you to kind of pair, pair words up. And so the difference might only be milliseconds, but it shows, mm. you know, at a, at a very deep unconscious level where you're filing them and whether something is matching the file and going in really quickly and easily or whether it takes you another millisecond to put it in the other file. And there was this one done about women in leadership. So a woman's name would flash up and then a word about um, a leadership role, something associated with leadership or something associated with a support role and then the same with men. And despite... 96% of respondents being women and 90, no, sorry, 86% of respondents being women and 83% being feminists, there was still an unconscious bias towards men and leadership and women in support roles, even mm. women, even feminist women. I'll let that sink in for a second. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? But it just goes to show that for me, there's something deeply important about not blaming people for the biases that they have and recognizing that we all have them and then being prepared to go okay I'm going to challenge myself I'm going to do the work I can't I can't change other people I can't change the world around me. I can't influence what someone else thinks or what some I could perhaps challenge what they think which would be great but I've got no control mm. over somebody else's interactions with the world I can only control my own so for me there's something really deeply profoundly important about doing the work on yourself and really kind of challenging yourself about what you think why you might be feeling some way if we're ever going to shift things further forward and that's how we get a new normal isn't it yeah I totally totally agree and I think in the last few years everyone's talking about the world has become really woke or everything's yeah. become too PC but I think focusing on whether it's become too woke if that's what you believe or too PC isn't actually the issue it's like is what any of what people are saying true? Yeah. Do you have a bias? Yeah. Are you um, a misogynist <laughs> in a woman's like? Yeah. Are, are all of the? Have you actually asked yourself that question, or have you just attacked the idea that we are all thinking about this more? Yeah. And it seems like there might be a lot of the latter. That's it. Rather That's than the it. former. And do you know if someone's got an issue with 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 equality it's usually because their success is rooted in oppression somewhere so you know someone that says oh the world is too woke now either hasn't had the patience or the time to kind of reflect on it and really think about it or they're happy with the way things are and not really caring about something it's usually the ones because that it say it them. doesn't matter so loudly that it seems to matter the most if it doesn't matter 
don't worry about it. <laughs> Leave it be. Why are you shouting at me if it doesn't matter so much? You yeah, know? yeah. It's so, oh God, that's a whole other avenue that I'm, <laughs> I'm having to really pull myself back from going down there with you. Because I uh, want to talk about the biggest obstacle that you've had to face. And we've been talking for a while now. And I don't think listeners are going to believe this because they're going to hear accomplished, wise, um, fulfilled, they are not going to think that one of the biggest obstacles that you've admitted to is the fact that you have negative self-talk. Mm. All the time. Because with everything that you've achieved, with everything that you do, doing a seven-year part-time PhD mm. in three years, like where is the space to talk negatively to yourself? Because it just seems that you go for it and do it. And that one would assume that your internal voice is champion, go for it. Not that there's ever anything pulling you back. It's funny, you know, I think one of the reasons I try to do so much is to keep myself busy so it drowns out the negative self-talk, oh, if I'm being okay. really honest. Um, but no, for a very long time, and, and we touched on it earlier, I used to look at everyone around me that was really successful and feel like I couldn't compare to that. And I think some of that is a response to the experiences that I'd had, and it's really, really tough. But I used to really struggle with the with the sense that I had no self-worth. Um, I used to struggle looking at people who were successful around me, thinking I can't possibly compare with that. And I do have a real tendency to overthink things at the best of times. Um, when, as I, when I was experiencing homelessness, I would become very hypervigilant because the world around you is very dangerous. And that's very common for people who've experienced something like that. And on the downside to that, well, whilst there are many occasions when it kept me safe, there is no doubt, the downside to that is that you can get quite anxious and you can overthink things as well. Um, when I look back to some of my um, earlier experiences, particularly through childhood and adolescence, I'm quite convinced that I had un undiagnosed um, OCD as well. So some of those kind of compulsive thoughts do tend to still creep in every now and then. Um, and so for me, I tend to overanalyze everything and I will catastrophize. And then I'll think about all the things that I could do to stop that catastrophe from happening. And I'll kind of ruminate on those things. And I will waste a long time thinking about all those possibilities and be thinking really kind of deeply about it. Whereas actually, if I just got on and did something, the reality is it would probably be fine. The mm. world's not going to collapse. It's still going to turn. Tomorrow's still going to come. Everything's mm. going to be fine. But yeah, I've had to battle with myself a lot over that. And on a, on a bad day, it'll still creep back in. You know, on a bad day, it'll still creep back in. And I'll think, oh, am I ever going to be able to do this? Have I called it wrong completely all the time? Um, you know, and you do have those moments. And it's just, for me, it's putting one foot in front of the other every time. And I think one of the one of the big changes for me was um, giving myself permission for it to be okay to feel afraid. So I used to look at people around me in work, other firefighters who would be cool as a cucumber, nothing had ever seemed to bother them. And, you know, you're kind of going into pretty, you know, significant events at the best of times. So, you know, it is the kind of thing where it would be legitimate to feel afraid, but I never saw it in them. But what I came to realize is actually, if you're afraid, then it means you understand the risk. It mm. means that you can calibrate the risk. Being brave doesn't mean that you're not afraid of something. Being brave doesn't mean you're fearless. If you're fearless, you probably don't get the risk. And that's a dangerous place to be. But if you're brave, you might be afraid, but you do something anyway. 
And it was recognizing that it was okay to feel those emotions and it was okay to feel negative about something because that's not where the important thing is. The important thing is what you do about it next. Mm. You've you've obviously unpicked it and understand it, but I'm wondering how it looked to the people that you worked with. Did you ever get called oversensitive? Uh all the time. Oh, you're not powerful. Yeah, definitely. I can remember being in a in a meeting once, and and I was a chief fire officer at the time, and I can remember talking about um, a, a decision in the room and about how I didn't want to do something because I didn't think it was fair on the decisions that other people would have to make. So I was gonna, get, and, I, and I won't say what it is because it's gonna be too obvious that um, about who I'm talking about if I did. <laughs> but I, I was told that that was, you know, that was an emotional decision. I was like, no, it's not an emotional decision. I'm thinking about the ramifications on other people about the decision that we're making. And I thought about it afterwards and I was absolutely livid. <laughs> and I thought, and I didn't, I didn't pick up on it quickly enough to yeah. challenge it in the way that I wanted to, or I should have at the time. But I thought there is no way in the world he would have said that to, a, to any of the male chiefs in the room. But I make a decision that's linked to the way that people think, which, by the way, as a chartered psychologist, I think I'm in a pretty good position to do. I'd say so. <laughs> and, it, and I'm being emotional. I was emotional on the way home. I was pretty cross. <laughs> it's, how do, it's how do you articulate emotion as a woman when you're furious in the workplace yeah. without seeming hysterical? Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Because if a man is emotional, then they're passionate. If I'm emotional, I'm emotional because I'm a woman. Mm. It's very, very different. And those same behaviors, many of which are necessary for success, are judged very differently depending on your gender. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. It's so tough. And I think you've also talked about how you present. Like, have you ever, not being the squeaky wheel, have you ever tried to display a more masculine uh, energy in order to be heard do you know i it is it never sat comfortably with me um and I, I and funny enough i wrote something about this in my in my new book because i was talking about how when i first went into um uh into a room with all of the other recruits on my first day of training school and we had to go in our civilian dress and we were getting our uniform then and I was like, oh, I don't know what to wear, don't know what to do. And I kind of turned up and, uh, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have, I didn't have a great deal at the time. So I just wore this like really simple office dress, which wasn't brilliantly cut, but I thought it showed that I made an effort. And there were some people that turned up in suits. I was like, oh my God, they're much smarter than me. I've called it wrong. And there were some that turned up in trainers. I'm like, oh, they're much more casual than me. I've called it wrong. And I kind of turned up and they were, there were some that were talking and they were kind of like being quite laddie. And I'm like, do I go in and do I try and be more like them to fit in? Or if I try to do that, am I going to be rejected? Because that's not how they think that I should present as a woman. But is that how you should present if you're coming in and being a, a firefighter and you kind of get to this point where you become incredibly self-aware of every movement and every breath mm -hmm. and every every everything about yourself in a way that's completely disproportionate to the situation and women do struggle with impression management and the pressures on women are much greater than they are on men in those kind of circumstances actually because you end up in a catch-22 situation and there was this amazing, amazing uh, uh, story that I was reading about a woman called um, Anne Hopkins who 
who was a very reluctant civil rights champion, actually, who was working for Pricewaterhouse back in um, in America in, I want to say, 1982. And she was amazing at what she did. She was like a force of nature. And in the in that workplace, you had to be aggressive. You had to be forceful. And she was. She was all of those things. She was salty with her choice of words. And she was incredibly successful. And she brought in more business than any of her counterparts, all of whom were, were guys in the same intake. But she didn't make partner. And she didn't make partner because she was told that she had to walk more femininely, talk more femininely, put do her hair and wear makeup. She was told that she had to be more feminine. And she took it all the way to the Supreme Court and she won. And the judge said that women are in a catch-22 situation where there's a trait that's expected of the job but not expected of him uh, of her. So you can't have a job where you're expected to be aggressive, where it's necessary for your job to be aggressive but then not be successful in it because you're a woman who then has to be aggressive. Mm. It's a complete catch-22. Um, and so it goes back to the Heidi and Howard story, doesn't it, where the same thing is judged completely differently. But I think that there is a huge pressure on women to manage their impressions in a way that me men have it too. Don't get me wrong, they do have it too, but not not in the same way for those traits that are necessary for success, which are already associated with being a man, like being assertive. Like for my, in, in my world, firefighters are already expected to mm. be guys. So, you know, all of those things mean that you can come in and be yourself and not have to think about extra. Whereas a woman going into those environments is always thinking about extra. And that's what mm. makes it additionally difficult. Not impossible, but harder. Do you think with men, they have... Uh, the first impression is sort of set and they get a chance to prove themselves quite quickly. Whereas maybe with the same with women, what we're saying is you can be written off quite quickly on that first impression and then it's going to be so much harder for you to prove yourself. It's yeah. not just that you have to prove yourself, it's that yeah. you have to somehow re-enter the space. Yeah. It, it's that that's maybe more maybe an easier process Definitely. from what you're talking about. Definitely. Women aren't allowed to fail in the same way that guys are. Yeah. So have you heard of something called the glass cliff? Um, I'm guessing it's the opposite of the glass ceiling. It is. It is. Or oh, the opposite of the glass elevator, probably more so. <laughs> but it's it was fascinating. So there's this phenomenon called the glass cliff where women are more likely to end up in risky positions where they're more likely to fail, but then they are less likely to be forgiven when they do fail. So there was a really interesting article that was written um, in one of the newspapers that looked at, it was based on um, some research for or some data from Cranfield, I want to say, that looked at um, women who went into the boardroom, who uh, I think it was FTSE 100 companies or FTSE 500, forgive me, I forget which. Um, but it basically looked at companies that had women on the boardroom, in the boardroom, in CEO roles, and looked at how successful they were. And it found that that companies that had women CEOs were less successful than companies that didn't. So there was this article that was written in the newspaper that kind of basically said how we should have left it to the men and women should have never gone in the boardroom. Presumably we have to go slinking back to the 1950s, put a penny on and make dinner instead then. But the <laughs> these, um, these other psychologists looked at that and went, mm, I'm not sure that's right. So they went back and they looked at the data again and they found that the companies that the women were working for that failed were doing worse in the five months preceding the appointment of the woman to the CEO position. They found that women were actually 
more likely to be given the high-risk assignments than they were with the guys. Um, and then when they did fail, there's something called the saviour effect. And this the same was true for women and people from minority groups as well, that when they were in a position where they had failed, like the, the CEO of a company, the leader of a company, more often than not, disproportionately, it was a white man that was parachuted in then in the position to then take over and turn the fortunes of the company around. And it was a really interesting finding. And when you kind of unpick that and you think, okay, well, what's happening there? You could think, well, is it that women are more used to having to fight for it? So it's it, it, it maybe you've got more exceptional women who get to that point because it is that much harder. Mm. So the less, the more risky assignment is less daunting. Or is it because it's so difficult to progress within a single organization that you have to move to a different organization? That's why you end up in a different place. Um, because the the other companies, disproportionately, more guys had been promoted through the same company to get to that position. So the company's doing well as well. They've got more time to think about leadership development and prepare people for those roles. Mm. Whereas if it's a company that's not doing so well, that's not the bit that you're focusing on. It's trying to float the company. So it's a really interesting point. So women find themselves standing on this glass cliff, this really precarious glass cliff. So you get to the top, you've smash through the glass ceiling, you escape the sticky floor, you navigate your way through the glass labyrinth and all of that. And you get there and you find yourself standing on another piece of glass. Great. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't I hadn't realized that, but you're you're right, aren't you? That if you're you are given the high stakes role and you drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might not get back up again. It's fascinating. There was another study that was done with lawyers that looked at the amount of times that um, male lawyers and female lawyers were given the high-risk cases. And it was the women disproportionately were given the higher-risk cases that had a greater chance of failing, that would have had um, more difficult implications had they have failed. So isn't it funny? Is it that they thought guys had more to lose? Is it that they thought they were doing the women a favour by giving them something that could be big and juicy? But then why is it that women are consistently tested with something that they are more likely to fail in? And it, it's it's the data that I found fascinating. You could talk about the reasons and the rationale and, and what might be going on behind the scenes, but that data, mm. that evidence was really stark. When you started pulling at this thread and started writing the gender bias, did you... Did you anticipate that you were going to no. <laughs> find all of these threads, find all of these studies, find all of these examples where it just shows up and it's so, so obvious? Yeah. No, I didn't. I genuinely, <laughs> hand on heart, didn't. I started writing it because um, I was putting together uh, a talk called Heroes and Sheroes, funnily enough, and I was sharing <laughs> some of the things that I thought were important for, for success and how some of my experiences of being a woman in that environment had, had kind of had, had played through. And there are things that I thought, oh, it's just, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. It's it's just, it's one interaction that I had that I kind of went, oh, that was a bit off, but didn't really think anything of it. And then when I did it, all of these other women in the audience were kind of putting their hands up and said, oh, this has happened to me. And someone else was like, this has happened to me. It was almost like an I am Spartacus moment. And I realized then it's not just me and it's not just that. We're all having the same experiences. Those single droplets that you kind of let go as a drop in the ocean are coming together. Mm. And there's a tsunami of this. And so then when I started to look at the evidence, when I started to unpick the research and I was finding study after study after study. And of course, 
my my research interests are predominantly around decision making and how your brain works under pressure. So this was new literature to me and I was pulling it out and I was sat at home and saying to Mike, you'll never guess what I've just read. This is preposterous. I'm getting really animated and really upset. Very emotional, obviously. We need a companion piece, which is Mike. And like oh, what it was no. like, like a video. <laughs> what it was like when my wife was writing his book. <laughs> Bless him. Well, I think for the most part, he left me to it with the dogs. So I think the dogs had just as much of a of a social commentary on it as poor Mike did. <laughs> it must, yeah, that must have just been a very odd experience, but yeah. also really validating because you're yeah. like, I think there's something here. And then kind of opening the cupboard and everything falling down. Yeah. I'm really mindful of the fact that our time together is drawing to an end. So I want to move on to... Uh, your weakness. Again, my listeners are going to be like, for the love of God, Emma, she has no weakness. <laughs> oh, I totally she is. She is a, an excellent example of someone who just goes after what they want. But you do say that you have a weakness and that your weakness is that you are very disorganized. So disorganized. Now, again, sorry, written books, <laughs> PhD, numerous awards, research in the la- like how on earth does being what's your version how do you define disorganized i've got to work so hard at it okay i've got to work so hard at it because i am naturally very disorganized i i thrive in chaos i like crazy i like not having a schedule i like not having a an agenda i like to be able to kind of go in and just do a whirlwind thing and and make something happen i love that um, but of course, I live in the real world. <laughs> the real world doesn't like that quite as much. So I, I think if I didn't have my um, my PA and a big shout out to Alison, who is amazing, <laughs> I would not get anywhere on time or, or have anything organized for me. She is incredible. But yeah, I have to work super hard at it. And you might think, well, hang on, you've done a PhD in neuroscience. So haven't you got to be a bit organized to be able to go through data? Well, when I put my mind to it, I can do it. But it's a lot of effort for right. me. I find it really hard. Um, and like I don't like clutter in my house. So Constant what clutter. you find is you open a drawer or a cupboard and all of the things that would be cluttered just fall out because I haven't got the capability of organising it. I'm very rubbish. Oh, I see. Do you need a home organiser to come oh in and God. give you like rainbow coloured things? I and... would love that. But it would only last about a day and it would all get jumbled up again. So they'd have to live in, I think. <laughs> Just someone picking things up after you. This goes in this box. I just wouldn't have thought. But then I think that's, again, that's another thing that we've got in our minds, that if you want perfection, you've got to live in, we can picture that perfect wardrobe where everything's on uniform hangers or everything in the kitchen is in the perfect Tupperware. Mm. Like my lids don't always match. I can't even find some of my lids. But I think we've kind of, again, this is something, a bias that, oh, well, if you're successful, then when we walk through your front door, your house is going to be perfect too and everything's going to have a place. And actually... That's another pressure that we're putting on each other. Exactly, exactly. This kind of internal pressure we put on ourselves for perfectionism is really unhelpful. And then, of course, it's it's no wonder we fear failure so much because we're not meeting our own standards, let alone the standards that we perceive all around us that everybody mm. else has. But yeah, I find being organised the worst. And I know I've let I've let myself go a little bit and kind of realized that's just not my strength. It's not going to happen for me. So I can work my way around it. And when I have to focus on it, I really can. And that's fine. And I know that I have to put a lot of effort into that. But mm. on a general day to day basis, good enough is enough, I think. Oh, good enough is great. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you about a time when you were wrong. And I really do want to talk about this because I do think this is very interesting because it's how we open the show. 
But equally, um, we talk about something that happened to you becoming an experience, not the thing that defines you. And very interesting, I had this conversation with another guest on the podcast recently, Lauren Marne. He was diagnosed with breast cancer at 31. He's been in remission for five years. But because of the campaigning that she does in that space, first thing people mention mm. is her biggest trauma. Yeah. And you've said that a time when you were wrong was to hide your experience of homelessness. But I also wanted to ask you, is there a time when you hope that you sit down and do a podcast with someone and they are reading out the introduction and they don't mention it? Or actually, will it always be something that you're okay with? Do you know, it's, I think it's definitely something I'll always be okay with now. And I think it's only by recognising that I was wrong to hide it for so long that I got to that place. Because I used to be so afraid of people knowing because I had, I felt like I had to hide it for so long. I used to have stress dreams about it because I thought if people knew that, they wouldn't take me seriously. I thought if people knew that, they'd still see me as that, as that kid that was sat on the side of the street with nowhere to go. And I think I was also worried that people would pity me and I can't bear pity. So there were a lot of reasons why I felt this pressure to hide it. But it was to the point where I had stress dreams about it. I would wake up in cold sweats mm. thinking about what would happen if people found out and how I'd cope with it and how I'd deal with it. And it took me it took me more than two decades to be comfortable enough to kind of go openly, hey, this happened and let's talk about it. And I think the reason I did eventually is because of the stigma, because if I'm feeling this stigma, I know that other people are, knowing how hard it is to come through the other side. I mean, the, even dealing with the practical things of moving to secure accommodation after experiencing homelessness is horrendous, let alone the emotional side of it and your sense of self-esteem and your sense of self-worth and everything else that comes from kind of piecing your life back together again after something like that. It's so tough. And then when you feel ashamed of it as well, it's just like, where do you start? Mm. It's so hard. And I didn't want other people going through the same thing. And when I did, <laughs> so I, I, I put um, I put something on social media and I was like, because it was when I was writing my first book and the first book was about decision making. And I thought, well, I have to be, if I'm honest about me and decision making, I have to be kind of honest about the things that have informed my lens. And so I have to talk about this. And I thought, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I sat there and I must have put the tweet out. You know, when you kind of type it out and then you kind of delete it and then you type it out again and delete it. Well, I did this process for several hours and I think I must have been about four gin and tonics in before I, I had the courage to press send. And I did. And I was like, absolutely beside myself. I had a pain in the pit of my, that's how, it wasn't just like that sicky feeling. It was so bad. It was like this pain in my stomach. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And then it went ping, ping. Ping, 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 ping. And people were really, really kind about it. And it was not at all the reaction I was expecting. But the bit that really cemented it for me is when other people who'd experienced homelessness had got in touch. And one came through somebody else who, um, and the message had said that they were speaking to someone that they knew that used to sell the big issue who said, you know, they'd sold it for three years. And if um, at the time I was a deputy assistant commissioner, they said if the deputy assistant commissioner in the fire brigade has been homeless and can talk about selling the big issue, well, maybe I don't have to be so embarrassed about it. And I was like, yes, thank you. I can remember talking um, at an event and a woman, it was a fire service event and a woman in the audience stood up 
and told us there and then that she'd experienced homelessness as a teenager and hadn't told anyone about it. And she did this in a room full of colleagues after I talked about my experience. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> you know, there's something in my eye. Obviously, I've been chopping onions. Um, but it was so powerful. And so many people have got in touch I've, to the point where I've got a folder on my phone now. Well, when I get those messages, I screenshot them and I tuck them away. So when I do have a moment of self-doubt, which creeps in from time to time, I just open it up and I remember why I've done this. And and I'm now an ambassador for The Big Issue, which is the street magazine that I used to sell, which helped me out of homelessness. And I do everything I can now to try to raise awareness of what it's like to experience homelessness and for it not to be part of your identity, but challenge people about what they think about people experiencing homelessness as well. So whilst I absolutely think that it, I shouldn't have hid it, I absolutely shouldn't have hid it for so long. I should have talked about it. Um, I don't think I'll ever get to a point where I regret it. And so I'm really happy to come on podcasts and for people to ask me about it. It's still hard to talk about because you're reliving trauma. Of course yeah. it is. And I think in time it will get less hard, I hope. Um, and there are still bits that I need to unpack and I'll do that in time. Um, but I think that if anything good can come out of something that's a horrible situation, well, you should grab it, even if it's hard, you know. You're amazing. I love you. <laughs> You're amazing. I am so glad that our paths have crossed. Me too. I I think you're an absolute inspiration for many, many reasons. Oh, thank you. Um, but the way you talk about all of your experiences, um, it's really powerful. So thank you so much. Thank you. For coming on the show and being so open. It's been incredible. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one. Bye.